Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. If you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, this morning we will be considering verses 23 through 33. Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33. These are the words of God. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at His teaching." Let's pray. Our Father, we pray you would bring your word to us by the Holy Spirit this day, that we would be built up in the faith, made strong, and encouraged. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, that we may have a great vision of you, and that we may be carried forward by that vision of glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you remember Jesus having entered Jerusalem now, is coming every day, and He's teaching the people in the temple. And He has been confronted in turn by each of the main groups within the power structure of Israel. He was confronted first by representatives of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. Then He was confronted by the Pharisees, And now in our text today, he is confronted by the Sadducees, who represent, in opposition to the Pharisees, the other main theological viewpoint on the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sadducees were more of an aristocratic party. Most of their uh, adherents came from among the wealthy and the powerful and the connected. Most of the high priests were Sadducees. And many of the ruling elders on the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. Most of the common people, however, supported the perspective of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, most of their power comes from popular support among the common people. Most of the power of the Sadducees comes not from numbers, but due to their connectedness, their wealth, their position, Uh, and their uh, prestige. They're they're kind of the aristocrats. 
And you can see in verse 23 one of the main bones of contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees did. And we learn a little bit more about the Sadducees and what they believed if we look at Acts chapter 23, when Paul is on trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, during his trial, Paul, it says, perceived that some of the, some of the people were Sadducees and others Pharisees. And so Paul then cries out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say, There is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. If a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, he's talking about the Roman commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them. So you see that the disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was a sharp disagreement. It seems that uh, the only thing they agreed on was their opposition to Jesus. But we see that in addition to not believing in the resurrection, they also did not believe in the human soul or human spirit that continues after death. And furthermore, they did not believe in uh, angels. Now, you may be wondering how in the world could they come up with this? I mean, they're, they're Jews, they're people of the Old Testament scriptures, Where do they get that view? Especially when you have in the Old Testament verses like Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. You have Psalm 16, which Peter quotes and applies to Jesus in his sermon on Pentecost, but this is what Psalm 16 says, My flesh will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Psalm 49 it says, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. In Psalm 73, it says, I am continually with you. You uphold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. And of course, there is Job 19. Job being one of the oldest figures uh, of, the, of the Old Testament um, of the time, of, probably preceding even Abraham. Listen to what Job says, Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. So, we could go on, but there's there's a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament that speak 
very powerfully. They may not lay out everything systematically about the resurrection like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. And of course, they had no actual picture, uh, they had no actual resurrection that had occurred at that time. Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. But you still have a lot of scriptures that point very powerfully, clearly, and personally toward the resurrection of the dead. How did the Sadducees get around all of these scriptures? Well, what they did was adopt a two-tiered view of the Old Testament scriptures. They took the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they elevated it up above the rest of the Old Testament. To them, the Pentateuch was the supreme authority. And the Pentateuch, uh, those five books, do not speak of the resurrection so directly and expressly as other parts of the Old Testament. And so um, they regarded the Pentateuch as the supreme authority, and anything in the rest of the Old Testament scriptures that the Sadducees did not see in the Pentateuch um, they just regarded that as theological innovation, and they dismissed it. They just brushed it off. Now, the other thing they did was they adopted a very narrow, minimalist approach to interp- interpreting the Pentateuch. So they would take passages like the ones we've read, or they would take passage, passages like Ezekiel 37, which is the very famous vision Ezekiel has of the Valley of Dead Bones where God says to him, Son of man, can these bones live? He says, You know, O Lord. And of course, in the vision, God causes the bones to come together and the flesh to come on the bones. And and basically, they become living people. They would take a passage like that and say, Well, that's just a symbolic expression of hope for the restoration of Israel's political fortunes. They'd say, What that's about, okay? And so the end result of, the, of, of, of really focusing in on the Pentateuch and, and it alone and, and kind of putting the other scriptures at a lower level and having this very narrow, minimalist view of interpreting the Pentateuch, the end result was that they believed the grave was the final resting place. They believed any kind of futurity or immortality, if you will, was simply a matter of reputation and posterity. It was a matter of having a good name and children and grandchildren and so forth. But there was no personal survival of the soul followed by bodily resurrection. The Sadducees over time developed a real contempt for the supernatural, which explains the reference in Acts 23, which we read, to the fact that they did not believe in angels. So you notice the Pharisees and the scribes are arguing, look, if an angel has spoken to Paul, we should hear him. We should not be opposed to God. And that just sets the Sadducees off. It's like, oh, angels again. Right, the supernatural. Uh, The closest thing we have uh, in in the modern, uh, more modern era to the Sadducees is deism which was very uh, popular in the late 1700s and the early 1800s. They rejected any sort of divine judgment involving rewards or punishments after death. Uh, They did not believe in the active sovereignty of God or if God actively being involved in this world, working out His purposes in history. 
They believed that God existed. They believed that he was the creator. But like the deists, they believed that he was detached, uninterested, and uninvolved in this world. And you can see the Sadducees' contempt for the supernatural and specifically for the idea of resurrection life after death by the hypothetical question that they put to Jesus in our text. It has a very smug, mocking tone to it because they regard the resurrection as ridiculous, ludicrous. And they know that Jesus believes in the resurrection and they want to make him look ridiculous for doing so. And in accomplishing that, they also want to alienate Jesus from a large portion of the Sanhedrin, which consisted of Sadducees. So the Sadducees come with this hypothetical question concerning the Old Testament law of leveret marriage, which was designed to provide a continuing family line for a brother who died childless, thus preserving his name and his material legacy, but also providing for the widow who often otherwise, in those ancient times, would be left destitute. So the Sadducees now, they have no problem with leveret marriage. They're not poking fun at leveret marriage. They did have a problem with the idea of resurrection, and that's what they're trying to mock. So the Sadducees pose this far-fetched hypothetical question involving seven brothers, who each in succession marry the same woman and die before they have any children. And the question becomes, in the resurrection, who will be her husband? Now, they're not looking for a real answer because they don't think there is an answer. And that's their point. They want to show that the idea of resurrection is absurd. So Jesus responds in verse 29 that the Sadducees are mistaken. Now, the word mistaken does not capture the full meaning of the Greek word here. For the Greek word means literally to go astray or to be deceived. It's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 24, 4 when he says, Take heed that no one deceive you. It's the same word Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3.13 when he says evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So it's not an innocent mistake. It has a moral component. It involves a culpable turning away from the truth. And that is really the situation with Sadducees here. They are not merely mistaken. They are self-deceived, and they are deceiving others. And Jesus says there are two main facets to their self-deception. Number one, they do not know the Scriptures. And number two, they do not know the power of God. Verse 29. Now, regarding the power of God, Jesus says, look, God is not limited by life as we know it right now. He says that marriage as we know it right now will not be a phenomenon in the resurrection age. He says that we will, in that regard, be like the angels. So the Sadducees' hypothetical does not present a problem to the power, the purposes, and the ways of God. Now, I know that, though, that raises a lot of questions for us. It's just, how does it work? Here we have this life, We have this wonderful thing called marriage, and God does wonderful things with it. 
And how does that work? When we get to the resurrection, it's just like, well, that was then and this is now. What's going on with that? We're going to talk about that next week, okay? This week, I want to talk about what Jesus says about the resurrection from the scriptures. So hold your questions about uh, resurrection life until next week. So then Jesus turns to the scriptures because he says you don't know the scriptures. And he picks a passage that's from the Pentateuch since the Sadducees view it as the supreme authority over the rest of scriptures. And Jesus goes back to a very key passage. It's from Exodus chapter 3. It's the very famous passage where God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And remember that when Jesus or the apostles cite the Old Testament, they're not really proof texting. They're calling to mind an entire passage. And so for us to understand what Jesus is really getting at here, I think it's best if we look at that passage. You can turn there with me if you want to. It's in Exodus chapter 3. I'll summarize the setting and then I'll read from it. This is a passage, you remember, that God is calling Moses to deliver Israel. Uh, Moses thought that Israel would recognize that when he killed the Egyptian who was uh, oppressing a, uh, an Israelite. And then the Israelites reject him. He realizes that the, the killing is known. He flees. He's been, he goes out through the desert um, to uh, Midian. There And he lives there for 40 years. He's married. He has children. Uh, he works with his father-in-law. He is a shepherd. And so after 40 long, long years, he's out uh, tending the sheep, and he sees a bush which is burning but not burning up. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. And so he, Moses says, I'm going to go look at this great sight. He goes over there. God sees he's coming. And he calls to Moses from the middle of the bush. He calls him Moses. And Moses says, here I am. He says, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off. For the place where you stand is holy ground. It's holy ground because the presence of God is there. Then God says, I am, and this is what Jesus is quoting. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then God goes on to tell Moses, Come now, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses then begins to raise his objections that he's not really qualified to do so and so forth. And God makes it clear, I am sending you, because I'm not limited by your weaknesses, perceived or real. But then at one point, Moses says to God, when I come to the children of Israel, if they say to me, what is his name? What is God's name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, The Lord, I am, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. So, 
There's a couple of things going on here. Um, one of the things is, you'll notice in, in the New Testament text, Jesus quotes, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And a lot of commentators uh, have focused on the fact that God is speaking in the present tense. Now, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are long dead. But God is speaking in the present tense, indicating a present relationship. Well, that one is not as clear as it seems because you see in the Hebrew there's no... There's no passive verb there. There's no am. It just says, I, the God. Now, it implies the present. It implies a present relationship. And I, I think that's part of what Jesus is referring to. But we need to acknowledge the fact that the word am, that verb, is not there in the Hebrew. But it's clearly implied. And so in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says in the Greek, I am. I presently am. And I think that's part of what God is getting at. But even if you put that aside, and let's just say, look, there's no verb here. We can't rely on that. That's not what Jesus is saying. Even if that's the case, Jesus is making the powerful case for the resurrection here in this passage. And here is the case that he is making. God says his name is I am. That is, he is the eternally self-existent one. He is the never-changing one. And therefore, he is the one who never fails to keep his promises. But he also says that his name is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And here's the point. Here's the point he's making. God so identifies with his people that he takes their names upon himself and makes their names part of his name. That's the point he's making. And that never ceases to be true. Even when his people are dead, he bears their names, which is why he still uses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those names, as part of his self-identification. Thus we have God saying in Isaiah chapter 49, I will never forget you. See? I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. It's the same idea. I've got your names written on the palms of my hands. That's a very powerful passage because the way God leads into that passage is this. He says, can a mother forget her nursing child? Well, the answer to that question is no. But then God says, he says this, they may forget, but I will never forget because you're inscribed on the palms of my hand. In other words, even if a mother were to forget her nursing child, even if you can conceive of that, I will never forget. I will never forget. You're inscribed on the palms of my hands. <clears throat> and so we see from Exodus 3 that God's not just talking about Zion as a whole, because in Isaiah 49, that's what he's talking about there, Zion. And so we could just say, well, he's talking about a, a group of people. He's, talking, he's not talking about people in particular. But from Exodus 3, we see that that's not true. He's not just talking about Zion as a whole or Israel as a whole or the church as a whole that God has inscribed on his hands. It doesn't say the church. There's billions of names listed on those hands. 
It's each of his children individually. It is each of his children by name. And that is the nature of the bond that God establishes between himself and his people, including each one of them individually. And that is how God saves his people. He is the I am, the eternally self-existent one. He is also the living God. That's that's the same concept, I am, the eternally self-existent one. That's the same concept. Over and over in the Bible, he is called the living God, the ever-living one. And when God takes an oath in the Old Testament, he says what? As I live. How sure is this promise I'm making? As sure as my own existence. I'm the font of all existence. I'm the font of all life. Numbers 14.21 As I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Romans 14.11 Paul quoting the Old Testament there As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So what that means is that God swears by His own name. He swears by His own eternal self-existence. He swears by His own eternal never-changingness. He swears by His own eternal life and faithfulness to His promises and to those to whom He has bound Himself. And Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, if you would just quit closing your eyes, if you would open your eyes to the Scriptures, going all the way back to God's promises of deliverance, which is what Exodus is a picture of. It's a picture of deliverance. If you just pay attention to who God is, the nature of the personal bond that He has established with His people, then you would see that resurrection that is, deliverance from death, has to be. It can't be any other way. For there to be no resurrection, for there to be no eternal life and eternal deliverance from death, would be for God to not live up to His name. It would be for God to deny Himself, to deny who He is. So Jesus' point to the Sadducees is that they're cutting the heart out of the biblical faith. They're cutting the heart of salvation out. They're cutting the heart of everything that God is doing in this world. They're cutting the heart of it out. They're not just pushing aside some ancillary, periphery doctrine. They're cutting the whole heart out. They're not just throwing out the baby with the bathwater. They're throwing out the baby and keeping the bathwater. The resurrection goes out and death stays. Resurrection, you see, is what God promised implicitly, starting with Genesis 3.15, when He promised that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise His heel. I mean, what is that? That's the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? That means the death and resurrection of all God's children in Christ. And what does the death and resurrection of all God's children in Christ mean? Paul tells us in Romans 8, it means the resurrection of the entire created order. And this is all because God has bound us to himself by name and has bound each of us in each of our names into his name. And therefore, everything that is true of Christ 
including his resurrection, is true for us. Now, this is what Paul is celebrating and reveling in in Galatians chapter 2 when he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, which Christ is that? That's the resurrected, eternally living Christ. And why is that true? And this is what Paul finishes this with. And notice, I want you to notice the way he says this. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And as we close and make application this morning, that's what I want to focus on. And I want us to realize that as Reformed Christians, that's the tradition we're from, Reformed Christians, another word for reform, you hear the word Calvinism or Calvinistic. This, what we're talking about here, the personalness of this salvation is the very heart of the true Reformed faith. It's the very heart of Calvinism as it started. And the reason why I want to focus on this is because it is, it's intensely practical. Yes, I'm talking here about what we believe. I'm talking here about a doctrine. I'm talking here about um, how we think of salvation. But this is very, very practical for our lives because it is our view of salvation, our view of what God is doing in Christ that drives our whole view of God. It drives our view of the Christian life. It drives our gratitude toward God or not. And our gratitude toward God or not drives everything else in the Christian life. Your view of God, whether you see Him as His loving whether you see His power, whether you see His wisdom, whether you believe you can trust Him with everything, whether you love Him, whether you're grateful to Him, whether you want to serve Him, all of that is going to be driven by how you understand who He is and what He has done in Christ Jesus and how He saves. So as I said, this intensely personal view of salvation is really the heart of the Reformed or Calvinistic understanding of salvation. Listen to the words of Abraham Kuyper, the the great uh, Dutch uh, theologian and statesman from the late 1800s and the early 1900s. This is what he said. Calvinism proclaims the exalted thought that although standing in high majesty above the creature, God through the Spirit enters into immediate Fellowship with the creature. This, this is the heart and kernel of the Calvinistic confession of predestination. There is no grace but such as comes to us immediately, directly from God. At every moment of our existence, our entire spiritual life rests in God himself. The Deo Soli Gloria, that means to God alone be the Gloria, is not the starting point but the result. And predestination is maintained not for the sake of separating man from man, 
nor in the interest of personal pride, but in order to guarantee from eternity to eternity to our inner self a direct and immediate communion with the living God. It's, it's about the personalness of God in His salvation. Now, this is completely contrary to the modern stereotype of Calvinism. We've been conditioned to think of Calvinism with its emphasis on predestination and the sovereignty of God as the very height of impersonalism. When you start thinking about predestination and decrees, doesn't that sound impersonal to you? Well, if you leave it there, yes, it sounds very impersonal. You have to see where God uh, goes with this. So it seems very impersonal by the normal way of thinking, and that is why many Christians have an almost visceral reaction against the Reformed faith or against Calvinism. And part of this is legitimate. Part of this is legitimate because it's a reaction to what much of Calvinism or the Reformed faith came over time to represent, really perversions of what it started out as, because it came to represent a very impersonal and I might add, unbiblical view of God's sovereignty, and also a very impersonal brand of the Christian life, and hence the name the Frozen Chosen. That name doesn't come from nowhere. Christians rightly repel from that form of Calvinism. Calvin himself would have rejected it. But that is not what Calvinism or the Reformed faith started out as. It's maintained God's exhaustive sovereignty precisely to preserve the personalness of God and His salvation. This personal view of God, now this is something, and this personal view of God's sovereignty is something that Christians instinctively believe. They may not say it, they may not articulate it, but I have never met a Christian, even in the modern world, I've never met a Christian who does not instinctively believe in the sovereignty of God in a very personal way. And they embrace it and they practice it. It shows up when they're on their knees. It shows up when they're in prayer. I have never met a Christian who doesn't pray to the God who can overcome the greatest obstacle and who can melt the coldest heart, and who can turn the darkest situation into light. Well, that's a sovereign God. They also, it comes out when it comes to God's promises, and as they live their day-to-day -day lives. I have never met a Christian who did not believe the promise of Romans 8.28. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love Him. Every Christian I know clings to that promise, and they believe that promise. You'll hear Christians say, God is in control. And that's absolutely right. But you see, you can't have Romans 8.28 without a sovereign God. You can't have a God who works everything together for good to those who love Him unless you have a God who's in control of all things. That's a highly personal promise. Notice that. Notice how personal God presents God's sovereignty as being. I mean, Paul presents God's sovereignty as being. And it's interesting 
that that great personal promise, God works all things together for good, comes right before the closest thing in all of Scripture to an ordo salutis. Ordo salutis means the order of salvation in the decrees of God before there's ever a world. Okay? So this is like high doctrine. This is like high sovereignty and doctrine and so forth. Where does that come in Scripture? Right after Romans 8.28. Paul says, Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good to those who love Him. Listen how he finishes. For whom God foreknew, He also be predestined to be conformed, to listen to the personalness, conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called, and whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. So you have the closest thing to here to just like pure, high, systematic theology comes right after this great personal promise. And it is offered not as abstract theology, but as the how and why of God causes all things to work together for good. And it is all personal. As Paul teaches us as he goes on, I'm going to read you what he says next. And as I read this, I want you to listen to how many times Paul says us and how many times he says we. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intersection for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God and the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything is for us. This is the real heart of the Reformed faith. This is the real heart of what Calvinism was trying to be about. I would just say it's the real heart of the biblical faith. The utter personalness of God, the utter personalness of His sovereignty, the utter personalness of His salvation, it is all for someone, namely for us. And what this means is this. Christ did not die to save a nameless, faithless, hypothetical group of people. Every once in a while you'll hear in the news about a legal thing called a class action lawsuit. 
you'll see commercials that come on uh, TV. It'll say, have you ever used this medicine? Did you use this medicine? Did you have some side effects? Did you work uh, with asbestos? And do you have side effects now? Call this number. There's this class action lawsuit. Well, a class action lawsuit is, is one which is brought on behalf of a hypothetical pool or group of plaintiffs. We don't know who they are. We just think there's a bunch of people out there who qualify, and then you opt in or opt out. The salvation of God by Jesus is not like a class action lawsuit, a bunch of hypothetical people. Jesus died for real people. Jesus died for actual persons who had names and who had faces, even if they didn't exist when he died. The other thing that is true here is that Jesus does not try to save. Thank God. He saves. If he could only try to save and we had to make up the difference, would any of us make it? Not if you're honest. He saves. These two truths, that he died for actual people with names, and that he does not try to save, he, tra- he saves. The affirmative statement of that, without any of the adverse implications that we often imagine. We imagine that God is trying to keep people away. We imagine this sovereign God standing in front of the cross, kicking people away so they can't come to Jesus. No, none of that's true. None of that's true. The reason why God has to act sovereignly in our salvation and sovereignly when he brings us to salvation is because it's the only way. It's the only way. It can't depend upon us. It depends upon him. So none of the adverse implications are true. Christ's death was sufficient to save the entire world. Salvation is truly offered to all. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, we want it. Well, which is it? Is God, is, is God sovereign? Or is Christ's death sufficient to save the world? Both. Is God sovereign or is salvation truly offered to all? Both. Is God sovereign? Or is it really true that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Both. Because God is sovereign, those things are true. These things show us Christ's, the sufficiency of his death to save the world. Salvation truly offered to all. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These things show us the breadth of God's love. We might even call it reverently the promiscuousness of God's love. But the personalness of God's love is shown in this. As a Christian, you know that when Christ died, He knew your name. Each of us can say with Paul, the Son of God loved me.
and he gave himself for me. Now this is a God you can believe in. This is a God you can trust. This is a God you can rest in. This is a God you can serve. This is your God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In whose name I commend all of these things to you. Amen.